2007, October 31. Today is Lecture 29, The Earth's Atmosphere. All right. So we've been talking about the Earth, and we've been talking about you looking at the Earth as a planet and establishing the base of information we're going to need to compare the Earth to other planets. Yesterday we talked about the Earth's interior. Today I want to talk about the other aspect of the Earth that makes it stand out, the Earth's atmosphere. The key ideas for today are as follows. I want to start by talking about the composition of the Earth's atmosphere. We're going to want to compare the composition of the Earth's atmosphere to the atmospheres of the other terrestrial planets that have them. We're going to find that the Earth's atmosphere contains primarily nitrogen, oxygen, argon, and water vapor with no hydrogen or helium. So this is one of the things that suddenly stands out. The most abundant elements in the universe are absent as the dominant component of the Earth's atmosphere. We then want to say something about what's called the greenhouse effect. This is an explanation for why the Earth is as warm as it is. In fact, if the Earth had no atmosphere at this distance from the sun, water would not be liquid. It would, in fact, be an ice. We'll say a little bit about the vertical structure of the atmosphere and the different layers of the atmosphere, which again will provide us with a point of comparison with other atmospheres around the, around the solar system. And then end by saying something about the origin and evolution of the atmosphere. The atmosphere we're breathing today is not the atmosphere of the Earth's distant past, and it may not be the atmosphere of the distant future. So we want to talk about what the primordial or original atmosphere of the Earth was, and we're going to find an interesting point. It's mostly carbon dioxide. But when we look around ourselves now, carbon dioxide is one of the minority contributors to the atmosphere. Why is that? And the reason is because atmospheres evolve. They change over, over, over the history of the planets they're on from a variety of inputs. Largely, those inputs are natural, but in fact, in the last century or so, we're beginning to see changes in our Earth's atmosphere due to human activity. We'll say just a little bit about that at the end of this class. But certainly, this is going to give us a very important starting point for our discussion of the atmospheres of places like Venus and Mars, for example, or even the atmospheres of the Jupiter-like planets in the outer solar system. So we need to first understand a bit about the air we breathe. So let's start out with the most basic description of the Earth's atmosphere that I can give you. That is, its composition. If I could look at the label on the side of the tank that the atmosphere came from, this would be its list of contents. The atmosphere we're breathing is, in fact, 77% molecular nitrogen, N2, followed by 21% O2, molecular oxygen. Those two combined give you basically 98% of what you're breathing in and out right now. After that, 98%, about 1% is water vapor. Even on a relatively dry day to like today, on average, the water vapor content of the air down here in the troposphere is about 1%. This is followed, surprisingly, by a fraction of a percent of a rare gas called, relatively rare gas called argon. Argon is one of the so-called noble gases. It lines up on the periodic table along with helium and neon. It's the next one below argon, along with, and then krypton, xenon, and radon. These are all the so-called noble gases. They do not chemically react with each other or anything else. So argon is always argon. Helium is always helium, and neon, of course, is there too. But for whatever reason, argon is, in fact, a fairly abundant element in the atmosphere, and then we get down to the things that are at fractions of a percent of the composition. The next most important is carbon dioxide, or CO2, which is really a big leap from 0.93%, that's just a shade under 1%, we suddenly are dropping down to, in this case, 35 parts out of 10,000, 0.035% of the atmosphere is carbon dioxide. 
That small fraction means it doesn't take very much for human activity to alter a very small fraction of the atmosphere. Why this is often a big issue right now is how much carbon dioxide are we belching out from human activity. After we get past carbon dioxide, you can kind of draw a line in the atmospheric composition. And everything else I get from there on are traces where the numbers are so small, I'm not going to bother writing them down here. Uh, methane, CH4, is an important element of the, of the atmosphere, as we'll see shortly. Various of the uh, so-called inert or noble gases, there's where neon, helium, krypton, and xenon, all the top five here, are represented. And then we get down into things that aren't gases. They're basically particulates, little, little bits of stuff, but very, very fine, almost like powder or like soot particles. For example, silicate dust, as you bust up rock or very, very fine sand particles rubbing against each other. There's a lot of suspended silicon in the Earth's silicates in the Earth's atmosphere. Sea salt is another con contributor to the particulate load of the atmosphere. And then things like sulfates. These are semi-solid particles that contain a high quantity of sulfur. Not surprisingly, most of the sulfates in our atmosphere come from volcanic activity, come up belching out of volcanoes. And then there's an et cetera, which is pretty much everything else. Now, in the et cetera is things like carbon soot from you know, forest fires or like the grass fires out in California belch some carbon soot into the atmosphere and so forth. Now, the exact percentages are not as important to you as, as knowing the basic constituents. What's interesting is that nitrogen this essentially chemically inert molecule. The, the, the human body doesn't do anything with nitrogen, as near as I, at least not nitrogen molecules, as near as I can tell. But we almost certainly do a great deal with molecular oxygen. In fact, if we lowered the oxygen content in this room too much, people would start to die. And then, of course, there's water vapor. Water is an important constituent of the Earth's atmosphere. Here's what the atmosphere looks like. The atmosphere is a very, very thin shell. In round numbers, the atmosphere extends upwards to about 300 kilometers. But as this picture shows here from the outside, in fact, I'm going I'm to drop the lights here a little bit so you can see this, get as much darkness as I can in this room. This very nice picture here taken from space shows you how very, very thin the atmosphere is compared to the size of the Earth. The radius of the Earth is about 6,700 kilometers in round numbers. The very top of the atmosphere is 300 kilometers up. But it doesn't have an edge. It's not like you sort of come out there and a little sign says you are now leaving the atmosphere. It actually kind of thins out and peters out. Most of the mass of the atmosphere is below 10 kilometers. So the 300 kilometers is really the upper reaches. But the breathable part, the part that we live in, is actually a whole lot closer to the Earth. It's measured in tens of kilometers. So it's a really, really thin skin covering the Earth. Now, there's some interesting questions we can begin to ask about the atmosphere. And one of the ways in which I've crafted part of this lecture is to pose a series of questions about why do we see certain things in the atmosphere and use that as a beginning point for discussing some of the basic properties of atmospheres, not just of the Earth, but in general, that we're going to pick up later when we talk about the solar system. So the first question you can look at is to look at the composition. You see nitrogen, oxygen, carbon dioxide, water vapor. Where's hydrogen and helium? After all, 75% of the universe is hydrogen. The other 24 and a change percent is helium. Oxygen, nitrogen, carbon, all that stuff, all of it combined is only a fraction of a percent of the total composition of the, of the universe. So why is it the most important, the most abundant two species, hydrogen and helium, are almost completely absent from the Earth's atmosphere? Why is that? Well, there's two reasons. The first of these is that has to do with the fact that the Earth is warm. 
It's very warm here. Because the Earth is warm, hydrogen and helium, which are small and light, move very, very fast at a given temperature. Remember when we talked last week about temperature, and the property of temperature is it's the speed at which atoms move around. High temperature things have the atoms moving very fast. It turns out there's a rule in atmospheric chemistry called the equipartition of energy. That says whether you're a big particle or a small particle, all the various collisions between the big and small things work out so that you all in the end end up on average with exactly equal portions of energy. So if I measure the amount of energy that's residing in a hydrogen atom and the amount of energy residing in a nitrogen 2 molecule, they'll have the same kinetic energy. But a nitrogen 2 molecule has way more mass, like 28 times the mass of a hydrogen atom. And so as a consequence, it's going to have a substantially smaller speed in order to have the same kinetic energy. This means that small things move faster than big things when you have equipartition. Well, hydrogen and helium are as small as it gets. And so at a given temperature on the Earth, hydrogen and helium have very, very high speeds, very, very fast at the given atmospheric temperature. So part of that's part one is, because it's so warm here, you know, 300 degrees Kelvin, the hydrogen and helium atoms are moving real fast. The second part of it is that we're on the Earth as a relatively small planet. Its gravity can only, stand, can only hold on to particles moving so fast. It has a relatively small escape speed. And it turns out, because the hydrogen and helium are hot, and the mean escapes, the escape speed for the Earth is relatively small, on average, the hydrogen and helium atoms have speeds which exceed the escape speed from the Earth's gravity. So because we're on a warm planet that's small and has a relatively weak gravity field, the gravity is too weak to hold on to the fast-moving hydrogen and helium. Now the big things like nitrogen, oxygen, carbon dioxide, they're slugs. They're big, slow-moving things because even though they have the same energy, they're bigger, so they move proportionally small, slower. And so as a consequence, they are below the escape speed, and so they stay trapped in the Earth's atmosphere. This is our first introduction to something known as atmospheric retention. We'll say a lot more about it when we begin talking about the general solar system next week. But the reason why hydrogen and helium is here is not because there's something special about how the Earth formed or where it formed. It's because it's too small and too hot to have held on to any hydrogen for very long, and it cannot retain it. So any hydrogen and helium it may have started with, what little there was, simply escaped and evaporated off the atmosphere a long time ago. The bottom line is this. The Earth is too small and too warm to retain atmospheric hydrogen and helium. I see I left off the word too, too warm. It's too small and too warm to retain atmospheric hydrogen and helium. That's why it's missing. That's not going to be true elsewhere in the solar system, as we'll see later. So does everyone get the idea of atmospheric retention? That's a big one here. Any questions about it before we go on? Okay. The second question is, so why is the Earth so warm? It turns out if you do the calculation, how warm should the Earth be at one astronomical unit from the sun? And the way you do that is you first of all just ignore the atmosphere and say if the Earth was out here but had no atmosphere, how hot would it be? How hot would you become? The way you figure that out is you have to figure out what the equilibrium is between the sources of heating, energy gain, and sources of cooling, energy loss. And in the case of the Earth and the Sun, there are two main processes that go on. The gain, energy gain that you get, is the sunlight from the Sun being absorbed by the Earth and heating it up. 
But last week, we learned that a black body is an object which is in equilibrium with its radiation field. A black body is an object that emits at all wavelengths as well as absorbing at all wavelengths. So all hot objects emit a black body spectrum, a continuous thermal spectrum of radiation. So if the Earth is warm, that means it's going to emit to a first approximation like a black body. Those photons, if there was no atmosphere, would just go streaming off into space. And so the infrared photons that are radiated by the fact that the Earth is warm, and therefore radiating as kind of an infrared black body, will carry energy away. And in fact, if the Earth and Sun get into equilibrium, the Earth will lose energy as fast as it gains it from the Sun, and so the temperature will neither rise nor fall. And you'll achieve what's called an equilibrium temperature. Now, you can do this calculation. It's a little bit complicated because the Earth is not exactly a black body. The Earth rotates, so it's like doing a slow barbecue roll underneath the sun. And there's some other complications. But when you do the math, what you find is that the equilibrium temperature you would predict for an atmosphere-free Earth is 260 degrees Kelvin. That's a good solid number. However, water freezes at 273 degrees Kelvin. So this is a problem. That's 13 degrees Celsius, 13 degrees Kelvin, below the freezing point of water. So 260 degrees is so cold that water could not be liquid on the Earth. In fact, water would be frozen solid on an equilibrium Earth. And we would expect no liquid water anywhere. But remember the picture we saw yesterday of the Earth. The Earth's surface is 71% oceans. There is liquid water everywhere. So here's a question. Why is this not the case? Why is the Earth not an ice ball? Why is it not frozen? Why is it warm enough for there to be liquid water? Well, the answer to that, of course, comes in the fact that I've done this calculation in the absence of the atmosphere. The atmosphere has an effect of altering this equilibrium through a process called the greenhouse effect. So to actually include the atmosphere now in this energy balance gain and loss equation, I have to look at all the different things that can happen to sunlight, not only as it hits the Earth, but also as it interacts with the Earth's atmosphere, both going in for the sunlight coming down and for the radiation of the warm Earth has to emerge through that atmosphere to get out. So let's kind of look at the numbers here. We start out with the sunlight, and that's our 100% gain. So that hasn't changed. But now we've got to say, well, what are all the different places this energy can go when it hits the Earth? Well, the first number we find is if we do, the, do it in detail, where we say, what is the Earth's ground reflectivity? What's the reflectivity of, of grasslands? Average out snow cover, all those different things. Light terrains like sandy regions, dark terrains like dark soils. On average, 51% of the incoming solar radiation is absorbed by the ground and the oceans. So combined, the ground and the oceans absorbs 51% of the incoming sunlight. The other 19% is absorbed directly in the atmosphere by molecules in the atmosphere, heating the gases in the atmosphere up. Okay, so that 51 plus 19%, that gives me a nice round 70%. So I've accounted for 70% of the absorption. The remaining 30% is reflected back into space. It never heats anything up. For example, it, it bounces off the surfaces of clouds, it bounces off shiny surface, it bounces off the surface of the water, bounces off snow fields, and so forth. Also, even gases are slightly reflective and some fraction goes in there. So if we look at the details, for example, incoming radiation, 51% goes into ground and absorption, and about 4% is reflected off the combined ground plus oceans. 
In the atmosphere, clouds in the atmosphere will reflect about 20%. Clouds are bright and white. That's because they're very strongly reflective. But clouds are also absorptive, and they absorb about 3% of the solar radiation at any given time. So the amount of cloud cover, of course, changes this a bit. The atmosphere itself, just the atoms and molecules making up the atmosphere, can absorb about 16% of the solar radiation coming in and will reflect off about 16%. So for the atmospheric component here of 19%, that's 16% for clear air plus 3% for clouds gives me 19%. And for the ground, 51% gives me my 70% total absorption. The other 30% is reflected back into space. Of that 30% reflection, 20% comes from clouds and then 6% from free atmosphere and 4% from the ground, all adding up to 30%. So there's my energy budget. So first and foremost, this is how much energy we absorb. The answer is we absorb 51% of the incoming solar radiation. Now if you think for a second, you say, man, that just makes the problem worse, doesn't it? Because my calculation of equilibrium before was assuming 100% absorption. Now I'm only absorbing 50%. Aren't I going to get colder? I mean, if I'm absorbing 50% less heat. The answer is, yeah, it actually makes it worse. Ah, but then we have to ask, what happens to the radiation that's emitted by the warm Earth trying to claw its way back up through the atmosphere? And that's where the difference comes in. And that difference comes in from the, something we call the greenhouse effect. Now, if I looked at the Earth's atmosphere and I asked what the spectrum of the Earth's atmosphere would look like if I looked at a continuous source through the atmosphere. Remember Kirchhoff's third law of spectroscopy. If I take a cool, relatively dense gas and put it between me and a background source of a continuum radiation, what do I see? I see the background continuum spectrum cut up by an absorption line spectrum made up of all the atoms and molecules inside that gas. So we can do this experiment. I can look at the sun, for example, through the Earth, down here on the ground with the telescope, look at the sun, and take a spectrum of how the solar, solar radiation at the top of the atmosphere is absorbed by all the gases in the atmosphere. At visible wavelengths, this would be a terribly boring spectrum because virtually nothing gets absorbed in the visible part of the spectrum. The visible part of the spectrum that we can see with our eyes is a wide open window to the space. But when I start getting into the infrared, and these are wavelengths now, visible light ends at about 0.7 microns wavelength. Here's one micron, two microns, four, all the way up to 28 microns. So I'm getting up into, into infrared heat radiation. For example, my body at a temperature of about you know, 98 degrees Fahrenheit, 96 degrees Fahrenheit for typical body temperature, is primarily an emitter here at around 10 or 12 microns. So you know, room temperature stuff emits strongly, peaked from Wien's law, at about 10 or 12 microns. So if I look up through the atmosphere, what I find is the atmosphere is absolutely riddled with strong absorption lines. And the strong absorption lines, I can identify what materials they're due to. They turn out to be due to water vapor, ozone, O3, carbon dioxide. This picket fence you see here is all water vapor absorption. So the Earth's atmosphere in the infrared is like trying to get through a picket fence of all these strong absorption lines. What this means is that if I go down in, in look in the infrared, the infrared opacity of the atmosphere, the atmosphere is almost opaque. It's like a brick wall to light either coming in from space or going out from the Earth outwards into space. So the infrared opacity in the Earth's atmosphere is primarily absorption bands of molecules, water vapor, carbon dioxide, methane, and other molecules. Hmm, we've heard of these molecules before, water vapor, carbon dioxide, methane, other big molecules. 
You may know them from other contexts as the so-called greenhouse gases. So the greenhouse effect is basically the visible sunlight passes right through the Earth's atmosphere because the Earth's atmosphere is completely transparent. 51% of it is absorbed in the ground, heats up. Another fraction of it, another 19% uh, is absorbed in the atmosphere, heats up the atmosphere. A warm solid or a warm dense gas will emit black body radiation. But the temperature is only about 300 Kelvin or so. That means the peak of that black body emission will be in the infrared part of the spectrum. So visible light comes down, gets absorbed by the ground, heats the ground. The warm ground re-radiates infrared photons. Those infrared photons, however, see in front of them trying to radiate back out into space, encounter the absorption bands in the atmosphere and are trapped and reabsorbed in the atmosphere. So if there was no atmosphere there, the infrared photons would just stream off into space and the Earth would cool off. But because the atmosphere is extremely opaque to infrared radiation from water vapor, carbon dioxide, methane, and other molecules, that radiation that would normally escape to space is trapped in the atmosphere, heating the atmosphere up. When you do the math, this heating is enough to make the Earth 35 degrees Kelvin warmer than it would be without an atmosphere. And that 35 Kelvin is enough to make it so that liquid water is the dominant form of water on the surface of the Earth. This is an effect called the greenhouse effect. It's a natural effect that occurs in the atmosphere because of the strong infrared opacity of gases like water vapor, carbon dioxide, and methane in the Earth's atmosphere. If we didn't have those gases in the atmosphere, we'd be screwed. The place would basically be a frozen ice ball. Okay? So the greenhouse effect is actually a good thing. It's just a natural process that occurs in normal atmospheres. If I change the proportions of the different greenhouse gases, water vapor, carbon dioxide, and such, I'm affecting the opacity of the Earth's atmosphere. More carbon dioxide, more water vapor, more methane, the atmosphere traps more radiation, and it warms up. The atmosphere, if you will, acts like a blanket. Okay? The analogy I like to use is, an Earth without an atmosphere would be like sleeping on top of your bed at night on a cold night like last night. You know, if you're just sitting there on the top of your bed in your jammies, you're going to get really cold, really fast. So what do you do to keep warm? Well, what you do to keep warm is you put a blanket on you. What's a blanket do? A blanket basically inhibits heat rising off of your body, which would normally rise as little convection currents of air off of you and off the bed, and it prevents radiation. You're a hot infrared black body. You're trying to radiate away at 10 microns, but you're not doing very, you're doing a very good job if you're just radiating into the room. It's carrying heat away from your body. But when you wrap yourself in a blanket, you're trapping that photon and you're heating the blanket. You're trapping the heat and the air, hot air next to you, and you get warm. In fact, if I put a big down comforter on top of me with lots of air pockets, those air pockets trap the warm convective air, and pretty soon a down comforter gets awfully toasty, and you got to practically throw it off because you're overheating. So what you get is a balance here. You've got a blanket due to infrared opacity in the Earth's atmosphere, and that makes it warmer. When we go talk about other atmospheres throughout the solar system, we're going to ask a similar question. What is the energy budget of this atmosphere? How much sunlight is falling in? That sets the base temperature. And then I ask, how does its atmosphere work as a greenhouse effect? Does the atmosphere have a fairly modest greenhouse effect like the Earth, which makes the Earth nice and warm and toasty comparatively? Does it have a super heavy atmosphere like Venus, where the greenhouse effect has gone crazy and Venus has superheated, like sleeping in a down comforter in the middle of summer? 
Or is it a place like Mars, which has a very, very thin carbon dioxide atmosphere and a very weak greenhouse effect, if any, and so it's a cold, frozen desert world? So the greenhouse effect is a very important part of understanding part of the energy balance for, an, for any atmosphere. Any questions about greenhouse effect before we go on? Again, it's a really important idea. I want to make certain we get down before we, before we get too far. Okay, what's the structure of our atmosphere? Well, like I said before, the atmosphere does not have a sharp edge. It doesn't, you don't go up 300 kilometers and the space shuttle doesn't fly through and say, oh, yep, just left the atmosphere. It's kind of hard to tell when you leave the atmosphere. There's kind of an arbitrary line between space and Earth. And it's, typically, we, we draw that line up about 100 kilometers. But in reality, the atmosphere kind of peters out. The atmosphere can be de described in terms of a quantity called the pressure, the atmospheric pressure. As I stand down here on sea level, what the atmospheric pressure is, is the weight of all the air above me pressing down on me because gravity is trying to compress it downwards. The amount of weight that I feel on me due to the air is, okay, I'll switch to English units for a second to be familiar, is 14 pounds per square inch. So you actually feel, even though you don't feel it, or as sensible of it, there's a pressure downwards on you of 14 pounds per square inch, or more precisely, a kilogram per square centimeter. Hmm, I like a kilogram per square centimeter better than 14 per square, per pounds per square inch. That's equivalent to a column of water one centimeter wide, imagine a soda straw with a one square centimeter cross section, and fill that straw 10 meters full of water. So if you were to go into a swimming pool, go down 10 meters, so that's 30 feet, that's pretty far down in the swimming pool, the weight of that water on you would be equivalent to the weight of the entire atmosphere on top of you right now. In fact, you would feel double the atmospheric pressure under 30 feet of water. Any of, you, any of you are divers, you've probably actually experienced that effect. You really do feel the pressure of the weight of water on top of you. So that's a good number to think about. One atmosphere is equivalent to a depth of water of, of 10 meters. Okay. Now as we go upwards in the atmosphere, of course, I'm getting higher and higher in the atmosphere. There's less air above me. In fact, most of the air will be below my feet. So as I go higher in the atmosphere, because there's less weight of air on me, the pressure will begin to drop. Not surprisingly, this is an exponential process, and it turns out the pressure will drop by 50% for every five and a half kilometers I go up in altitude. Five and a half kilometers in round numbers is, uh, you know, mumble, mumble, mumble. It's, uh, um, I should, uh, three miles of altitude. So if you go up 15,000 feet, which is kind of like a high altiplano in the Andes, if you're at 5,500 meters, about 15,000 feet, 15, 16,000 feet up, you have half the atmospheric pressure you do down here at sea level. Now, that wouldn't be too bad. That means you only feel seven pounds per square feet, or, excuse me, uh, half a kilogram per square centimeter. But it also means you have half the oxygen by volume. It's still 21% oxygen, but there's half as much of it there. And so you have to breathe really deep. I don't know, how many of you have ever been up to really high altitude without oxygen gear? Like 14,000, 15,000 feet. Highest I've ever been is about 14.5. And believe me, I can feel it. I start feeling the atmosphere around 10,000 feet up at our observatory, like LBT. About 14,000 feet, I get a really bad headache for a night. I've had friends of mine who've actually gone climbing in the high Andes up to 20,000 feet, and they just feel sick the whole time. When you get up to some place like Everest, most people, unless you're you know, one of those crazy alpinists who can, who can do Everest without oxygen, most people need supplemental oxygen above about 22,000 feet. And the reason is simply there's less air up there. So, for example, 
To give you an idea of how it works, Mount Everest is the highest mountain in the world. It's got an altitude of 8,850 meters. The atmospheric pressure at the summit of Mount Everest here shown in this picture is one-third the atmospheric sea level pressure. It's equivalent to breathing oxygen with only 7% content equivalent on the ground. So it's really, really rough. It's act, in fact, above 26,000 feet, above about 7,500 feet is often what's known as the death zone because most people will just simply die from oxygen starvation. Well, this vertical structure to the atmosphere, this vertical change in pressure, as I go higher and higher, the pressure drops off, and to a first approximation, the temperature should be dropping off. The higher you go, the colder it gets. All of you have probably experienced that. For example, if you've gone out to the west and you've, you, you fly into a place like Denver or, or, or out in the, the valleys there, where it's only about 5,000 feet altitude, and then you go up in the mountains, it gets pretty cold pretty fast, even though it's middle of summer. Here's what the Earth's atmosphere looks like laid out vertically. The lowest layers, which go up to about 10 kilometers, where most of the weather and where most of the mass of the atmosphere is, is called the troposphere. That's where we find the tallest mountains, the highest cirrus clouds, and the little puffy cumulus clouds. This is the weather zone, the troposphere. Above that is the stratosphere, which runs between about 10 and 50 kilometers. And about 30 kilometers up, there's a thin layer known as the ozone layer, which we'll say something about in just a second. Between 50 and 85 kilometers is something called the mesosphere, the sort of the middle place in the atmosphere. And then above 85 kilometers, all the way up until you pretty much get out, is this is the beginning of the transition into space, the place we call the thermosphere. This is where the aurora borealis occurs. Now, if I plot on this graph the temperature as a function of height, I find something rather surprising. Down at low altitude in the troposphere, the temperature does what I expect. Okay, the way this curve works is vertical is altitude in the atmosphere. To the left on this curve is cooler temperature. To the right is hotter. So cooler on the left, hotter on the right. In the troposphere, it's exactly as I expect. The higher I go, the cooler it gets. But as I get above up into the stratosphere, all of a sudden, the temperature starts to turn around. It's really thin out there. The air is really thin because I'm, you know, many, 50 kilometers up, that's 10 E folding lengths. That's a thousandth of the... Uh, 10 halving points, so that's a thousandth of the atmospheric pressure I have here on Earth. But it suddenly gets warmer until it's almost the same temperature as it is down at sea level. And the reason for that is in the stratosphere here, the ozone layer is a very strong absorber of ultraviolet radiation. Normally, the UV radiation can't make it to the ground, which is a good thing. It's being absorbed by the ozone. The ozone heats up and heats the stratosphere, causing a temperature inversion. Temperature inversion is when the temperature is higher than you expect from the drop in temperature up in the atmosphere. This temperature inversion continues through the stratosphere, and then once you get up into the mesosphere, the temperature inversion turns back around, and you go back to the regular trend that the higher you go, the cooler you get. In fact, it's this turnaround in temperature that defines the boundary between the stratosphere and the mesosphere. So the mesosphere is where the temperature begins to increase, and there's a little bit of stuff that goes on in the mesosphere. When you get up into the thermosphere, which you might guess is being named for the word thermos, meaning hot, is this is the layer in which X-rays and gamma rays and particles like that begin to be absorbed. X-rays ver are very high-energy photons. They heat the gas in the upper atmosphere and actually cause the temperature to climb dramatically. At the very top of the thermosphere, getting up to a couple hundred kilometers up, the temperature in the thermosphere is way bigger than the temperature on the ground. But, of course, it's super thin. I mean, you couldn't be breathing it up there. You wouldn't be sensible of the high temperature. You would only know it was hot because you'd see the particles moving around really fast. 
So this is the vertical structure of our atmosphere. We have this inversion layer due to ultraviolet absorption in the ozone layer, and then a second inversion high in the thermosphere where X-rays are absorbed. So to summarize that in words, the Earth can be, atmosphere can be divided up into a series of what we call thermal layers. The troposphere is the lowest weather layer. The stratosphere is a layer that's heated up by ultraviolet photon absorption in the ozone layer. The mesosphere is a cooler intermediate region. And finally, the thermosphere is the highest layer of the atmosphere heated by UV and X-ray photons. Now, it turns out above this, there's often a fifth layer that people talk about called the exosphere. The exosphere is the transition between the Earth's atmosphere and interplanetary space. So all of this is just a smooth transition from the Earth all the way into interplanetary space. So where did the atmosphere come from? Well, after losing most of its hydrogen and helium early on, the early atmosphere was built primarily by outgassing from volcanoes. Maybe a little bit of stuff brought in from colliding asteroids and comets, but mostly its gases belched up out of the interior of the Earth. These gases trapped in liquid rock are water vapor and carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide really does a good job of dissolving itself into rock. Opening up a volcano is like shaking up a bottle of soda pop and cracking the top. It just poof, blows out all kinds of CO2. The other thing you get is small amounts of nitrogen and sulfites. So all the sulfates and all that junk that comes out that makes volcanic gases smell bad. But there's no oxygen. There's no process. There's no simple chemical process that produces free molecular oxygen on a lifeless world. Now, this, what this means is the initial atmosphere of the Earth was primarily carbon dioxide and a bit of water vapor, trace amounts of nitrogen, and no oxygen. But that's not what we see today. Today we, today we see an atmosphere which is mostly nitrogen, oxygen, and only traces of water vapor and carbon dioxide. So how did the composition turn around? How do we go from this inhospitable water vapor carbon dioxide atmosphere to a nitrogen oxygen atmosphere? How did it get that way? There's two ways to ask that question. The first one is to say, well, where did all the CO2 go? Maybe 96% of the Earth's original atmosphere was carbon dioxide. In fact, a thousand times more carbon dioxide than we see today. So if it started out with it, where did it all go? It has to go somewhere. It can't just vanish. It can't just say, ah, we're going to pack up and go to Venus. It has to go somewhere. Well, the answer turns out to be linked with the fact that water can exist in liquid form on the surface of the Earth. Soda pop is CO2 dissolved in sugary water. That's fundamentally what Coke is. That's the secret, rest of the secret formula is just what makes the color and the taste come out right. But fundamentally, soda pop is carbon dioxide dissolved in water. A lot of carbon dioxide can be dissolved in water very easily. So what happens is, because the conditions on Earth are just right for the formation of liquid water, the water vapor in the atmosphere, as the atmosphere cools, begins to rain out as liquid water and build up the oceans. As it rains out, it dissolves in carbon dioxide. CO2 is very easily dissolved in liquid water. And so it precipitates out, and actually a lot of that carbon dioxide ends up in the ocean water. Once carbon dioxide is dissolved in water, it's available to undergo chemical reactions with other elements in the water, like calcium. Calcium and carbon dioxide forms calcium carbonate, which becomes the basis of limestone. And so what happens is the carbon dioxide that used to be in the atmosphere is locked into the oceans, is liquid water, and then liquid water chemistry slowly precipitates that carbon dioxide out, and it locks most of the CO2 that used to be in the atmosphere today, four and a half billion years later, 
is locked up in crustal limestone rocks and crustal carbonaceous rock. So the reason why we don't have a mostly carbon dioxide atmosphere now, even though we started with one in the past, is because of liquid water chemistry. Liquid water is the way to scrub carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and lock it up into crustal oceans. Now it turns out that nitrogen, one of those other principal components, is chemically inactive. It doesn't dissolve in water, it just kind of stays there. So after a while, it becomes the default component of the atmosphere because the carbon dioxide is scrubbed out, but the nitrogen is left alone. So the reason where did the CO2 go? It's locked in crustal rocks by water chemistry. Any questions about that before we go on? Because again, we're going to see places in the solar system where this did not occur and there's a different composition in the atmosphere. Here's an example of this calcium carbonate. This is actually a, uh, a roadbed cut near Sharon Springs, New York. This is old seabed. This is actually where, this is some of that carbon dioxide from the Earth's original atmosphere locked up as calcium carbonate. All right. Well, the second major component of the Earth's atmosphere is oxygen. Where'd the oxygen come from? Molecular oxygen is here because of life. That's the straightforward answer. There is no other chemical process we know of that will create molecular oxygen except photosynthesis in plants and algae. Some of the carbon dioxide was, was aspirated by plants with photochemistry with, with complex organic molecules. The carbon dioxide and water was combined into sugar form so the plants can make energy. And the byproduct of that chemistry is O2, oxygen, which the plants expire. Come around 600 million years ago when the first plant life started really showing up, the first single cell algaes and then later the first plant life on Earth, as soon as that stuff hit, oxygen chemistry is very, very reactive. Oxygen is a marvelous energy source. And so as soon as photosynthesis from the sun in the presence of liquid water began to kick in, in, in first in algae and later in complex plants, the atmosphere just began to be filled with oxygen. So we went from zero to 21% in about 600 million years, or actually less. It went only in a few million years. Ozone, O3, is another dominant form of oxygen. It forms in the stratosphere when this molecular oxygen, due to life, interacts with UV photons. Because it blocks UV radiation from the ground, UV radiation being very damaging to DNA and plant life, plant life could begin to thrive even more. And you've got a little feedback cycle going on. So the signposts of life on Earth is oxygen and ozone in the Earth's atmosphere. So the answer is oxygen and ozone are the signs of life. They are the signs of photosynthesis. Here's just a couple pictures here. This is the 500 million year old stromatolite bed. This is basically floating colonies of oxygen producing blue-green algae, cyanobacteria. This is from petrified sea gardens out in Sarasota Springs, New York. This is the original oxygen source of the Earth's atmosphere. Here's a curve showing what the oxygen content of the atmosphere was like. About 2 billion years ago, it was really small. And then about 600 million years ago was the Cambrian explosion of life. And bang, within a few million years, the oxygen accumulation reached almost the present day values within a few tens of millions of years. It was a very, very rapid process. Well, atmosphere sort of tells you an important lesson here. Atmospheres are complex, dynamic systems that evolve over time. In the past, we had the primordial atmosphere condensed water into the oceans, locked up carbon dioxide in, in carbonaceous rocks, and formed oxygen by photosynthesis. So we went from this primordial nastiness to something actually breathable and nice, a nice place to live. This continues into the present day. This is not something that just happened in the distant past. 
The carbon dioxide content of our atmosphere is actually regulated by a very complex cycle known as the carbon cycle, an interchange between water and different forms of carbon dioxide. Increases in oxygen and methane have occurred in our atmosphere because of biological processes. As biological processes continue, as we, for example, certain types of agriculture in increase the methane content of our atmosphere from biomass. And finally, human activity, burning of fossil fuels in massive amounts and agriculture are also beginning to have an impact because our numbers are big enough and our economic activity is strong enough to begin to also begin to affect the composition of our atmosphere. Here's this carbon cycle. I'm not going to go through it in detail, but you can see this is a very complex pathway between sources and sinks of carbon dioxide and the presence of liquid water all playing a role in the cycling. What's important also to carry away from this is that this is a complex cycle, but we have actually gotten to the point now in the history of our planet that we are beginning to have an impact on this. The primary human impacts that are measurable and that no one disagrees about anymore is that emissions of greenhouse gases, primarily carbon dioxide and methane, amount to about 20 billion tons of gases per year. And they've been accumulating since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution at the beginning of the 19th century. Ozone layers have been destroyed by chlorofluorocarbons, and there's an increase in particulates from forest fires, uh, pollution, and smog, all of which are playing a role. This impact is real, and it's, it's measurable. We can actually measure it and trace it over time. The arguments that are playing out in the news and everything else are whether the long-term impacts of these changes in our Earth's atmosphere. We, really, we don't really know for sure what dumping 20 billion tons of carbon dioxide and methane into the Earth's atmosphere is going to do to climate and the more complex cycles long-term. All we're sure is it's having an impact and a big subject of the early 21st century will be try to understand the economic and political reason, meanings of these impacts and see whether there's anything we can do or are we just going to have to ride this experiment out. Any questions? Good. I will see you all tomorrow then.